Okay, um, the title of the sermon is Fate and Chance, Part 2, and there's going to be many parts uh, to this. I think I alluded to that a few times in the very beginning. The reason why we didn't do the scripture reading is because I'm going to do it here in the sermon. Last week, we began looking at a pattern in the Apostle Paul's writings. Oh, and by the way, I'm sorry. I forgot to make the announcement. We made it last week, but all of you that are here this week weren't here last week when we had the yard service. Masks are now optional. That's okay. Should have said that in the very beginning. Okay, so anyway, last week we began looking at a pattern in the Apostle Paul's writings. And it's a pattern used by Paul to describe how we obtained salvation. More specifically, we see in Scripture that God predestines us and calls us from before the foundations of the world. That is, before the world was even created. He had us in mind, according to Scripture, before he created the universe each of us, that we would be his in Christ Jesus. And he also not only marked us for salvation, but he marked us for a purpose. And that purpose, as we will learn, is to be conformed to the image of Christ. So let's look again at our text one more time. We looked at it last week. We'll look at it again this morning. And next week, actually, Romans 8, 28 through 30. And you're going to want to follow along, folks, in your Bibles. You'll be, you will be totally lost this morning if you don't follow along in your Bible. Verse 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So God foreknows, he predestines, he justifies, he glorifies us. We're conformed to the image of his son. That's the pattern I'm talking about. When I talk about the pattern in Paul's writings, two-thirds of the New Testament, and that's the pattern without deviation, by the way, as you will see. Now, also last week, we, we looked at very similar order of words, almost identically, actually. If you flip over to Ephesians, please. Same pattern. You can't read this after reading Romans 8, 28 through 30 and think that it's anyone else other than the Apostle Paul doing the writing here in Ephesians. He says, this is Ephesians 1, beginning in verse, beginning in verse 3 or verse 1. Okay, verse 3, sorry. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why. Which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Not because of anything that you did or I did. Verse 8, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. What's the mystery of his will in scripture, folks? It's the gospel. According to his kind intention, there it is again, which he purposed in him, that's Christ, verse 10, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth, in him. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that he who, that we who, I'm sorry, were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. It's all about glory, folks. So there you have it. A very similar order of words in Romans 8 and Ephesians 1. And as I said before, we're going to continue to see these words elsewhere leading us to this same pattern by which we are saved. Scripture interprets Scripture, right? As a matter of fact, these words are so common in this sequence as they describe how our salvation came to pass that theologians have nicknamed this chain of words. They call it the golden chain of salvation. That's what it's called. Put that on the back burner of your, your mind for a couple minutes. When I study in order to prepare a sermon, and most pastors that I know do this in this order, um, in addition to studying the text, obviously, uh, I will read what I call the, the harder stuff and then what I call the easier stuff. And the harder stuff consists of a number of theologians that I and others, others more so than I, um, considered to be experts and or well-respected authorities on the, the text that we're preaching from. Then I couple those with the theologians of yesteryear, we'll call them the dead men, who have been unanimously touted by everybody as textual authorities and in regard to typically all the scriptures and not just like today where you have textual authorities just on one 
or two books of the Bible. If you notice, there's a dichotomy there. Uh, postmodern theologians specialize in a book, and the old-time theologians, you know, Edwards, Owen, specialized in the whole canon. Anyway, different sermon. Um, how many of you know that you can have one of the leading experts in the entire world on a subject, and that may be that that person may be incredibly book smart, but they couldn't explain those things in a way that everyone can understand them and make sense in their everyday life. You know what I'm talking about? And that's why we read, that's the hard stuff. That's why we read the easier stuff. The easy stuff consists of pastors and regular run-of-the-mill Bible teachers and authors who have fleshed these things out and not only comprehend them well, but also have a knack for coming up with very cool ways to convey the subject and the truths and to get people to understand them in a way that they can understand them no matter where they are in their Christian walk. You with me? And as you know from previous sermons, I have no problem whatsoever taking a back seat and quoting someone who is much smarter than I am or someone who has come up with a better way to explain something than I have. My, my goal is never to, to razzle and dazzle you, but instead to, to merely present the text in such a way that everyone can understand it and apply it to their Christian walk. I mean, if I can't do that, then I've failed miserably. I want to encourage you. I want to motivate you. And if necessary, I want to convict you. So as I was reading some of the easier stuff this week that pertains to our text in Romans 8 and this so-called gold chain or golden chain that we just read about, I came across a guy, as some of you might know him, I don't, I don't know him. Uh, his name's Pastor Justin Dillahay, D-I-L-L-E-H-A-Y. And he has an MDiv from um, the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a pastor at Grace Baptist Church in Hartsville, Tennessee. And he's a contributing editor to the, to the Gospel Coalition, which is where I found this, this article of his. And he says this concerning our text, Romans 8, 28 through 30. Quote, it's a long quote, so um, bear with me. He says, it's important to recognize why Paul forges this chain to begin with. The answer is found, he says, in the famous verse 28. And he quotes it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Then he goes on to say, notice that Paul isn't simply making a factual claim here. Pastor Justin says, all things work together for their good. He's making a knowledge claim. Here's the, the trick, okay? He's making a knowledge claim. E.g., we know, know that all things work together for their good. 
which raises the question, he says, how do we know? How do we know that all things work together for their good? What guarantee can we possibly have that despite all appearances, all things will conspire for good, for the good of those who love God and are called by Him? That's the question of the golden chain, he says. And he goes on to say, that's why verse 29 begins with the word for. Look in your Bible. This is a great point. Remember, he says that the trick is to know why. Then he says that this is why verse 29 begins with the word for. He says it's providing an argument for how we know verse 28. Look at verse 28. So 29 is providing an argument for how we know verse 28. And here's the argument in a nutshell, he says. We know that all things work together for the good of the called, because if you're called, that means you were first foreknown and predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, and it means that you are now justified and will eventually be glorified. That's how we know, because there are no breaks in the chain, he says. He goes on to say, it simply means that God hasn't left the composition of Christ's family in the hands of fickle human beings. God does more than just influence. He predestines. That's why, he says, all things work together for the good of them that are called, for the good of them that are in Christ, and who will be, Christ is the firstborn among many brothers, Romans eight twenty nine. So he says, God is in charge, the outcome is secure, and that is the guarantee that we know, that we know what we have. Does that make sense? I had to read it like three, four times before it made sense to me, that's why I'm asking you. Anyway, I think this Pastor Justin um, put that in a way that is very easy to understand if you study the text. The Lord has linked this golden chain that accurately describes the sequential order of our salvation, called, foreknown, predestined, conformed to the image of Christ, and of course, justified, sanctified, and glorified. The fact that the Lord begins that chain with calling us and predestining us is how we know that we are guaranteed that all things work or all things will work together for good. God is in complete charge, and that's our assurance. That's how we know that all will work for our good and his purpose. So the next thing I'd like to address this morning, let me back up. You remember I said several weeks ago that as we embark on this, you know, we've already talked about um, God being sovereign, God being sovereign over evil, the problem of evil in the universe, I don't want you to think I kind of just brushed that stuff away. We're going to go back to that in much more detail, much more comprehension. We're going to go back to the golden chain and Romans 8 
29 and 30. But right now, I'm even going to push that on the back burner and go into something a little bit different but still relational, okay? The next thing I'd like to address this morning, um, there are Christians and even pastors, we talked about this three weeks ago, I think, who believe and teach that the word for new at the very beginning of verse 29 means that God looked down the corridors of time. How many of you have heard this? Okay. Looked down the corridors of time and he saw who would accept him and who would reject him and henceforth he predestined those who would eventually accept him and he did not predestine those whom he foresaw as one day rejecting him. This is a common statement amongst those who champion the notion that we have free will in salvation. Free will in our own salvation. These same pastors and teachers will say that God would never interfere with man's free will because if he did, they say, we would all be just a bunch of puppets with God pulling all of the strings. Church, this is incredibly, incredibly important. Would you like to know why? Because nowhere in Scripture, I would challenge you to find a place, nowhere in Scripture is it taught that man has free will in regard to his salvation. Nowhere. As a matter of fact, the opposite is consistently true and consistently taught by those of us of the Reformed ilk. Men and women do not have free will when it comes to salvation. Now, when I make that statement, <laughs> the objections begin to fly, right? Uh, remember I told you a few weeks ago that there would be objections and people would have a lot of questions that would arise in this series, okay? This is where the objections and the questions really arise. They begin to arise. Predestination and election. And people will say things like, well, the Bible says whosoever will can be saved. They'll say things like, well, now, 2 Peter 3.9 says that God desires all men to be saved. And they'll say, 1 Timothy 2.4, Paul says that God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Right? People said that to you before. Arminians said that to you. So how in the world... This is what they would say to me and have said to me. How in the world can you possibly say, Mike, that man has no free will and that God predestines certain people to saving faith and passes, passes others over? It's imperative that we thoroughly address this 
Because if we don't, folks, if we don't have a right view of this doctrine, you will not have a right view of God, who he is, his character. And you won't have a right view of who you are in Christ. That's why it's so important. If I was born in West Virginia and I worked in the coal mines there for 42 years and you went around telling everyone that I was born in Alaska and that I worked as a commercial fisherman there for 25 years, people would certainly say that you don't know me. It's no different with God. If God says numerous times in his word that he predestined you unto salvation and you go around telling everyone that this isn't true and that God actually never interferes with one's free will regarding salvation, people would say that you not only don't know and understand scripture, but you don't know and understand the God of scripture. Who God is and what you are in Christ is directly related to how God saved you. And if you don't understand that, then you aren't going to understand the God that you claim to know in prayer, know through his word, know through fellowship with other believers we will end up getting to this and, and to um, the corridors of time next week. But before we go there next week, I want to handle these objections that I just quoted, the scriptures I just quoted. Let's, I want you to turn to these two. You, you can turn to um, 1 Timothy 2 first. Church, you have to be able to defend these objections. Not defend them, I'm, I'm sorry. I should say eradicate them. You, you have to be able to take people to the scriptures and destroy these objections. Now, follow along with me, please, in um, 1 Timothy 2.1. You've heard me say before, before I read that, you've heard me say it a thousand times, that um, the one thing that causes misinterpretation of Scripture and the one thing that causes wrong doctrine more than any other thing on the planet is taking scriptures out of context. You can't take verses and yank them out of context of the chapter and the book and the canon and willy-nilly build an entire doctrine around that one verse that you yanked out of context. You can't do that. But everybody does it. We've got to stop doing this and we've got to tell others and teach others to stop 
doing it. And the only way, I'm going to put another plug in for this. I do it all the time. not going to stop anytime soon. The only way to stop doing this is to make people understand what it means to study the Bible inductively. And teaching others to study the Bible inductively. Now, we don't have time this morning to get into inductive Bible study and why it's important. We've talked about it here many times. If you don't know what I'm talking about when I say inductive Bible study, Google it. I'm not being facetious. Just Google it. Go to the Precept Ministries website, which is K. Arthur's ministry, and learn they have videos on there. Learn how to study the Bible inductively so that you can be sure to study Scripture in context and teach other people to do the same. It's so important. Next to the day. Sorry, Zach, my son. Next to the day of God saving me, the most important day of my life was not the birth of my kids or my wedding. Hmm? Seriously. Next to my day of salvation, the most important day was when somebody took me to an inductive Bible study training workshop for eight hours. Because what I learned to do there changed everything, changed my entire life, which I hope made me a better father and a better husband, and a better Christian. Folks, it's that important. Anyway. Back to the subject at hand, which is common objections to predestination and salvation. Okay. 1 Timothy 2.4. The heading should say something like, pray for all people, right? Okay. Verse 2. First of all, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Do you mean each and every person on the planet, Paul? Now, remember, in inductive Bible study, one of the first things we do is look at the five W's in the H, who, what, when, where, why, and how, okay? So, when, when Paul says to Timothy all people. Is he talking about each and every man and woman on the planet? Look at the context. Verse 2. This isn't even a new sentence. This is a continuation. There's a comma there after the first sentence. Then this is, I'm sorry, after the first verse. I'm going to read it again. I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So who are the all people, according to the context? Kings and people in high positions. You with me? Now, if you look at the cross-references, um, most of the cross-references in a decent study Bible will have at least two, 
and one is Ezra chapter 6 verse 10 and the other one is Romans chapter 12 verses 17 and 18 and in Ezra Ezra says that that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons and then Romans 12 never pay back evil for evil to anyone respect what is right in the sight of all men if possible as far as it depends on you be at peace with all men, and we'll see why he says that in a moment. Verse 3, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people. Who are the all people? Kings and people in high positions. All people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 4 does not mean that God desires each and every person on the planet to be saved. If it did, then each and every person on the planet would be saved. Because we already studied that God's sovereign, right? He's sovereign over salvation. Verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, or God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed, Paul says. What were you appointed to, Paul? To be a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Okay, it should be clear to you at this point, when Paul says all people, in the context of these verses, and in the context of the cross-references, with the rest of Scripture, he does not mean all men, or each and every man on the planet. He means all types and classes of men. Men of all types and classes in the social strata. Even kings and those in high positions, verse 2. Now, this is why I'm saying what I just said, other than for the context. When you study the Bible inductively, you also have to learn, or you also will learn, that you have to study the culture and the history and the people and the language. I mean, if you're going to be a missionary to a third world country and you don't know the language, you don't know the culture, you're going to be in big trouble. You have to keep in mind that as we consider these things, Paul is speaking to Timothy within a Roman culture where there was great disparity between the haves and the have-nots. People of lower classes did not like to associate with people of upper classes and vice versa. As a matter of fact, they hated each other. A lot like India is today. They say they've gotten rid of the caste system. No, they haven't. Anyway, people in the upper classes often, Paul's day, ripped off people in the lower classes in regard to money and property. So Paul is speaking to this, and he is telling Timothy that despite these feelings of disparity, Christian, 
that are so common in your culture, Christian, you still have a duty to pray for all men, even the kings, even the people of high position that hate you and steal from you and take your land. That's what he's saying here. And he even goes as far as to say in verse 6 that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all classes of people. Therefore, he says in verse 8, I'm using verse 8 to interpret verse 6. I want you to pray for them, all classes of men, all men, and lift up holy hands together without dissension. And he said in verse 2, in addition to praying for kings and all who are in authority, live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity around them. Don't shoot your mouth off. Mind your own business. Work with your hands. Lead a quiet life. Then down in verse 7, he says, Look, I ain't lying. I've been appointed a minister and an apostle and a preacher and a teacher to these Gentiles. You Jewish Christians thought you were the, the only ones. That Israel's God's chosen people. You Judaizers. But I'm telling you, God has made me. Pharisee of Pharisees. Okay? And minister to these Gentiles. So, the other thing that we have to remember is that typically when Paul uses the phrase all men in his writings, which he does very, very often, he means Jew and Gentile. He means men of all nations. He does not mean each and every man on the planet. As a matter of fact, if you start in Romans 1, I've done it. And you go through the entire book of Romans and you highlight every time you see the phrase all men. Every time you see it, he's talking about Jew and Gentile. Not each and every man on the planet. This is the context of 1 Timothy 2. All types, classes of men, kings. People held in high regard. That's who you need to pray for, Timothy. You can't take that verse and yank it out of context and use it as a proof text to say that every man, woman, and child on the planet will be saved. Okay, let's look at 2 Peter 3.9, if you would turn there, please. So if you get into a discussion with someone and they quote this, trying to defend free will, you could take them there and walk them through it just like we went through it here this morning. Now, 2 Peter 3.9, when I converse with people who are trying to convince me that they have free will in regard to their salvation, this is the verse they quote the most, or that I hear the most. 
And I would be lying to you if I did not say that it drives me absolutely batty every time. Because it does. And as crazy as it might drive me and you, perhaps, we must always keep 2 Timothy 2.25 in mind. And I'll just read that to you. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive to do his will. Notice even there, Paul says that God grants them repentance. They don't come to repentance on their own. So it's Second Peter 3.9, at the top of your, the heading of your chapter in your Bible, if you're sporting the ESV, it'll say the day of the Lord will come. And if you're looking at the New King James, it'll say where is his coming. And the NASB will say the coming day of the Lord. I just want you to see that every major translation is in agreement as to what this chapter is about. Okay. It's about the promised second coming and scoffers telling Christians, where's your God? Where's your Christ? You said he was going to return. He ain't here yet. That's what the chapter's about. Beginning in verse 3, Peter says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. Beloved, he's speaking to Christians. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So we have to ask the five W's and H, what does Peter want to remind them about? That you should remember the predictions. What predictions, Peter? Of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Verse 4. I'm sorry, I started at verse 1. Verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You with me? For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Flood, worldwide flood. Verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept for what? Day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So, scoffers, and my beloved, verse 8, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. He's quoting Psalm 90, verse 4. The Lord is not slow, or the Lord does not delay to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is Patient toward you. Who? You. Your account. 
not wishing that any of you, beloved Christian, should perish, but that all you should reach repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt and they will burn. But according to his promise, according to God's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count Listen, important verse. Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. In other words, the longer the Lord waits to return, the more people are going to reach repentance. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things... In them that are hard to understand, see, even Peter knows Paul's hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. He's calling Paul's letters scriptures. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Do you see now that this passage has absolutely nothing to do with each and every man and woman on the earth getting saved? This passage, this chapter, is about scoffers mocking Christians, beloved, because they are waiting for the Lord to return and he hasn't returned yet. And Peter reminds these beloved Christians that Christ will indeed return as the prophets and apostles predict he will. Then Peter says, and this is beautiful, I think, Peter says that the Lord is delaying because he's waiting for the rest of of the beloved, the elect, to reach repentance, to come to repentance. There's, there's Christians out there that have been elect before the foundations of the world. They haven't yet come to Christ, and he's waiting for them to come to a place of repentance and be saved. Now, Scripture interprets Scripture, as I said. If you flip over, please, to Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those that had been slain 
for the word of God, for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long till you get those people back for killing us, for martyring us? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be, not yet, but were to be killed as they themselves had been killed. So we see again, there's a predetermined number of the beloved who will be saved. And 2 Peter 3.9 is not talking, Peter's not talking about all men on the planet being saved. He's talking about those who have yet to come to Christ, have yet to reach repentance. The context there is the beloved. How many times did we read the word beloved? Again, inductive Bible study. Go down and highlight the key words which lead to key phrases which lead to themes. The theme there is scoffing, where's your Christ? He's coming. He's waiting until everybody comes to repentance, then he'll return. Has nothing to do with people that are unsaved and God wanting those people to be saved but standing there helplessly and not being able to save them because they have free will and they're rejecting him in their free will, which is the implication that an Arminian would imply. So, again, we will, we will look next week at Romans 8, 28 through 30 again, and we'll, we'll deal with the corridors of time objection then and we'll look at other passages of scripture that show plainly that man does not have free will in regard to salvation neither can man listen we're also going to talk about um, why man can't resist God's call irresistible grace is what that's called definite redemption if God's calling you to his son, you will come to his son. You can't resist him, his call. So we're going to talk about that. And we will learn that man's will is not only um, at times bound, the bondage of the will by Luther, remember that book, Erasmus, we're going to learn that the will is not free and the will is indeed bound by God either for good purposes or not so good purposes depending entirely 100% on God and not on man. And the most important thing that I hope we learn is that all of this is in the context of being conformed to the image of Christ for the Father's glory. We have to keep that in mind at all times when we study these scriptures. This is all about God's glory. You know, why does God create a devil that he knows, or why does God create an angel that he knows is going to fall, okay, Satan, for his glory? Why does God allow evil for his glory? 
We'll talk about that more. Everything is for his glory. Okay. Let's pray.